Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. What I will tell you is that uh, come the fall and winter, uh, most everyone who's uh, an expert on pandemics and uh, these viruses will tell you that strong chance that we see we'll see a resurgence of a, the virus, whether it's the variants that we have now or new variants, and we got to be ready. COVID people. Now me, I just have a cold. There's 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 a difference. The difference is pretty large. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. However, what we do know is that variants are going to come. Again and again and again and again. And none of what we have as vaccines are going to work. The vaccines are not going to work. The vaccines are meant for a specific purpose, not for something that has such massive amounts of mutations. It's interesting that Jim Garrity over at National Review writing that it's been a long time since this newsletter focused on the COVID-19 pandemic, but the story of the pandemic isn't quite over yet. Cases are rising significantly from the numbers last spring. Now, that happens to be true. Yesterday, the U.S. reported 190,000 cases, new cases of COVID-19. This is a new variant. Can't deny that it's happening. What you must push back on is the idea that society now has to stop again, or you have to be forced into uh, masks again, or there has to be forced vaccination again. Our problem is that the pseudo intellectuals who brought us bad policy last time don't learn anything. These are fear based people. Fear based people who will engage again. With fear. That's their plan. That's their objective. And anything you say, well, that just proves how terrible you are. You want grandma to die. We were discussing this in the abortion conversation and in the transgender conversation. And what we were discussing was how if you don't agree with everything, you're somehow fully evil. Listen to Professor Bridges, professor at uh, Cal Berkeley, getting asked questions by Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin about abortion and life and how it plays into their trans game. Baby that is delivered alive has value? Yes. Do you think that a, um, a, a baby that is not yet born has value? I believe that a person with a capacity for pregnancy has value. They have intelligence. They have agency. They no, have I'm dignity. talking about the baby. And I'm talking about the person with a capacity for and I'm, pregnancy. And you're not answering the question. I'm answering a more interesting you think question that, to you me. You think that a baby that is not yet born, let's say the day before this mother delivers, do you think that baby has value? I think that the person with the capacity for pregnancy has value and they have the they should have the ability to control what happens to their lives. That's pretty radical. It's as equally radical as saying that, oh, we have COVID, we have to lock everything down again. 
Sorry, restaurants can't serve people. Sorry, uh, retail establishments can't have people there. Uh, the, the lawyers can still keep working, though. They can still keep making money. You know, just not you. Not you and your business. It's a radical position to say, I know what you're asking me. Does a baby have value before being born? But I don't want to consider that. I just want to uh, answer my own questions because I'm the only thing that's important to me. She's a professor. She can't teach you anything. She's not giving you perspective. She believes she knows everything as opposed to sharing information and education with you. She believes because she feels it, it matters. She believes because she says it, it has value. As opposed to saying something of value. I don't want to answer your question, Senator Johnson. I only want to answer my question. That's a, that's a take. Now listen, I, 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 I understand how to do that. I, I, have, I have said that before on air. Yeah, I don't think that's the question. I think this is the question. But I do it for a purpose. My purpose is someone is trying to engage a level of trap in an argument. Not asking a question of value. For example, so when did you stop beating your wife? That's a, it's not a question that you answer. Does a baby have value before they're born? And your answer is, the, 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 the pregnant woman is the one that matters. And oh, not the pregnant woman. Whoever the pregnant person is, because you're playing in this game of somehow men can get pregnant when, of course, they can't. Men can never, ever, ever, ever get pregnant. All of this, all of this, going down a road of you have to only think a certain way. You're only allowed to give a certain answer. Producer Ari asked me a question. As I was discussing earlier, when we talk about a, a, a 10-year-old getting raped, and it's not I want to dwell on the thing, but if we're going to have hard conversations, let us have them. And uh, the question is, can a 10-year-old actually give birth? And uh, the, the quickest search online is like, yeah. Although there could be serious, serious health consequences. I'm not an expert. I wouldn't have the answer. A, a search online, I don't think, gives somebody uh, the knowledge. My argument was as follows. If we listen to people like Eric Swalwell, the only answer is an abortion, and I wanted to know, is it possible to have a conversation about something else? So, for example, I want to know what we're going to do about the border to keep people from illegally coming into the country. Because if we could stop illegal aliens from coming into the country, maybe we can stop some rapes. Something we can proactively do. Why aren't we talking about that? The person who raped this 10-year-old, as it was reported by the Indy Star, the Indianapolis Star, was in the country illegally. As a matter of fact, you have no actual knowing of who he is. They don't believe they have a real name on the guy. He's lived there for years. For years. That's the latest reporting. 
So can we be people who proactively stop this from happening and to some extent limit this horror show? And I noticed that Eric Swallow isn't talking about that. The only answer is unfettered access to abortion. That's a weird, weird take. It's a weird place to be. That's not something that we should say is a rational answer. That's anything but. That is anything but a rational answer. This horrible thing happens, so therefore we have to do all these other things here. But not the one thing that might actually prevent this from happening. It's a weird take. You know, the, 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 the follow-up to, to the question of could, could a 10-year-old even have a child is, you want to force that on the kid? Me, I no, 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 I don't. No, I do not. But it's not my kid, so I'm not going to be the one who makes the call. Because it would now go about that if somehow a family decided to keep this child, they're abusive. They check with doctors, they check with this one, they check with that one. Can they make that call? Are we going to make the claim that the the 10-year-old makes the call? I get it. This stuff is like, what the hell, cats? I'm telling you the kinds of conversations that grown-ups have to have. This is what the overturning of Roe requires. And it's why states need to get it handled. States are going to have to make a call. Somebody asked me on Twitter, uh, is, uh, do you think uh, Indiana, my state, uh, they could, you know, just get together, have limits, have exceptions, and be done? My answer is I think that's the way they want to go. But the political left can't handle any limits. They, they'll, they'll get destroyed by their party. They don't want any limits. None. Zero limits is what they want. So can they get together? I have no clue. Can Republicans and Democrats hash something out in their special session? No idea. I have no faith on them at all. At all. But I'm willing to be surprised. I truly am. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So I don't know if you've been following this story about Representative Ocasio-Cortez. When I was six years old. But this is what happens when you think you are above the fray. And too many elected officials think they are above the fray. Me, I'm not one of those people. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. I am in the fray. I'm not feeling well and I'm still working. You've been there. You know what that's like. Everyone except producer Ari knows what that's like. I'm invincible. I'm going to live forever. Well, and also when he has the sniffles, he he stays home for a week at a time. He just crawls under the under the bed, under five covers, cries to himself and hopes it all goes away. If it works, it works. So Representative Ocasio-Cortez is posting about something that happened on the Capitol steps. It is, um, it is, well, this guy, I don't know who he is, um, 
who is on the Capitol steps. I don't know if he's cursing or not, Ari, so I'm not playing it. And uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is with a couple of her people walking up the steps, and he is referring to her as my favorite big booty Latina AOC. That's dumb. And at one moment, she actually walks over to him, like, do you want a selfie? And she wrote, here's a video he posted of the incident. I was actually walking over to deck him, meaning punch him, because if no one will protect us, then I'll do it myself. But I needed to catch a vote more than a case today. Um, protect you. Some guys being a moron, what is the, the, the protection? She continues, you know, I posted about a deeply disgusting incident that happened today on the Capitol steps, but took it down because it's clearly someone seeking extremist fame. It's just a bummer to work in an institution that openly allowed this, but talking about it only invites more. Just really sad. It's a bummer to work in an institution that what? People can call you names? People can say things to you that aren't nice? Let's let's go uh, a couple weeks ago to Brett Kavanaugh dining at Morton's Restaurant Steakhouse in downtown D.C. Protesters show up, screaming and yelling and hooting and hollering. He has to leave. He wasn't able, he couldn't stay for dessert. These guys are screaming. He decided to exit out the back. Representative Ocasio-Cortez tweeted out, Poor guy. He left before his souffle because he decided half of the country should risk death if they have an atopic pregnancy within the wrong state lines. It's all very unfair to him. The least they could do is let him eat cake. So when a Supreme Court justice is getting physically threatened, that's funny and totally fine. When you, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, are told you have a big booty, that is harassment and a threat and something needs to be done about it. That's a weird flex there, Representative. How do you square the circle? How do you explain that to anyone else? How would you possibly explain to another person, why when it happens to you, it's bad. But when it happens to somebody else, it's fine. You know, there's a great line from Mel Brooks, uh, the difference between comedy and tragedy. Tragedy is when I cut my little finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. That's her. Anytime it happens to somebody else, it's funny and they deserve it. Anytime it happens to her, it's bigotry, it's uh, anti-Latino, it's sexist, it's this, that, the other. Got to tell you, that's special. That is special to believe this uh, about yourself. Because she does. She believes herself more important. Now, a little story about Morton's that you may not have heard. Morton's. Very, very upset that this happened at their restaurant. Morton's is like, how how dare you? Honorable Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, 
and all of our other patrons at the restaurant were unduly harassed by unruly protesters while eating dinner at our Morton's restaurant. Politics, regardless of your side or views, should not trample the freedom at play of the right to congregate and eat dinner. There's a time and a place for everything. Disturbing the dinner of all of our customers was an act of selfishness and void of decency. To which the group shut down D.C. is uh, like saying, get blanked, Morton's. And then what people started doing is, hey, call Morton's and uh, and and uh, make a reservation and then don't show. These people aren't decent. They're not. They're not good people. They're the worst people. Do what we say, or accept the violent, violent consequences. Decency flies out the window because they believe they're right and they believe you shouldn't have rights. That is who Representative Ocasio-Cortez is. Now, I'll tell you, if I didn't have the cold, keeping my voice down, oh, I would, I would be doing impressions. I'd be, I'd be doing it all. Oh, oh, it kills me. Kills me. See, I could hit the falsetto. Just can't use the, the full voice right now. But remember that they think they're better than you. And the truth is they hate you. I often uh, discuss uh, that they hate you for who you are and what you believe. Most importantly, they hate you for not thinking like they do. Maybe that needs amending. They hate you for not accepting everything they say. How dare you notice the hypocrisy of Representative Ocasio-Cortez? That, in and of itself, acknowledgement of reality is bigotry. Don't tell me 1984 isn't a good book. Don't tell me Animal Farm isn't important. Here it is. You notice something, but if you say the thing that you notice, that's the proof of your bigotry. That is the Orwellian push to keep you silent, prevent you from speaking out, from speaking truth, from being rational, from utilizing your mind. My advice, even with a sore throat, keep talking that'd be me biden went to israel but he ain't got a plan jay carafano is up next you there's more to this story than just a trip and a couple of gaffes keep it here this is tony katz today Regard to the question you asked me, uh, my views on Khashoggi have made been absolutely, positively clear, um, and I have never been quiet about talking about human rights. The question that I'm, the reason I'm going to Saudi Arabia, though, is much broader: is to promote U.S. interest promote U.S. interest in a way that uh, I think we have an opportunity to uh, reassert what I think we've made a mistake of walking away from. One would assume he means the Iran nuclear deal. I'm not one of the people who believes it's a mistake, but there were plenty of people within his party 
who believed this trip to Israel and then to Saudi Arabia is a mistake. He wasn't going to shake any hands. He's shaking every hand uh, that that he can find. He's going to be tough regarding the uh, murder of Khashoggi. But is that really going to be a front and center subject? What is the purpose of these trips? And where is Joe Biden's foreign policy? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. James Carafano joins us right now, leading expert in national security and foreign policy uh, challenges. He is also the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, also an E.W. Richardson fellow. His latest piece, Foreign Policy Strategy for a Post-Biden Era. You're already thinking ahead, James. You're already thinking when Biden is done, but we're still in, in the thick of it. Uh, let's start with a, maybe just a, a basic question. The purpose of this trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, does it have value? What is supposed to come out of it? What is Biden going to get out of it? No, look, I don't think it has value. And normally when you, when a president goes on the trips, there's a clear deliverable that he's seeking on, on the back end. It's very clear that they're not leaving on this trip with any any clear deliverable. And it, it, like much like the Summit of the Americas and the, the Summit for Democracies, it's one of these things that maybe they had on the calendar and they thought, well, when we get there, there'd be something to do. And then it turns out they've done such a terrible job laying it up there isn't. But what this is, which does, is this is illustrative of Biden's kind of aimless, reactive, disengaging um, foreign policy. And, and why I say that particularly with this trip is it, there's, there's this really this inability to really be decisive because, as you pointed out, there, there are elements in his own party that would throw Israel into the sea, um, that would embrace the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and you know, to have a radically different foreign policy than, than most of America would want. And, and, and he, said, he said things verbally on this trip. You know, that it's opposite like that. Well, we have to engage with Saudi Arabia. Oh, Israel's our most important ally. But he hasn't disengaged from any of their underlying policies. So, so for example, he says, well, we embrace the two-state solution. Well, you know, so the two-state solution is the idea that Palestinians have a state and then Colorado to Israel and Israel have a state. Now, what, what that actually means is the Palestinian Authority, which is corrupt, which is in bed with Hamas and terrorists in Iran, gets to decide the pace of relations in the Middle East. And, of course, their answer is they have no interest in peace or progress because they would lose money, right? And so nothing happens. And, and, and that's why Trump broke that Gordian knot. And he said, look, we're not going to tie this two-state solution to engaging in the Middle East, and we made this enormous progress. And, and what does Biden do? He goes, well, I embrace the two-state solution. All that means is he's lapsing back into a failed policy because he's got all these people in, 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 in his party that actually like these people that love Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood and everything else. So you cannot serve two masters. But we see the same thing on climate, right? You know, at the, at the one hand, he's, in, you know, he's never letting go of all this green stuff and everything else, and he's, but he's letting oil out of the stockpile and trying to buy oil from Venezuela. You know, he, he's trying to get the price of gas down without abandoning the green agenda, which says we don't want oil and gas. Um, the same thing on human rights. He says, I embrace human rights. Well, this is completely feckless. He's, he's talking to Venezuela, human rights abusers. He's engaging with Cuba, human rights abusers. He's really done nothing about the Uyghurs, human rights abusers. 
Um, they're, they're massive. Ma- Iran is, has a horrific record on human rights. And right. What's his response? Let's engage with Iran and give them and a bunch of money. So the Iran conversation, sir. The Iran conversation is the one that's most fascinating. Talking to James Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. Uh, it is, it was Barack Obama's desire to create some kind of peace with, with Iran. And so therefore we got the Iran nuclear deal, which had all the power of a treaty without actually going through the treaty process, really limiting we the people from our elected representatives being able to have a say uh, on this. It was President Trump that did away with this because in my view, it clearly led uh, Iran an easier road down towards getting a, a nuclear weapon. Joe Biden wants this back. Where is the real divide between, we'll say Republicans and Democrats, on this deal, and are we better off having Saudi Arabia as a friend or as a partner in some kind of deal? Or is there any value to trying to create that with Iran? Can it be done? Well, I think the answer is demonstrably no. I mean, the, 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 the Obama experiment was we'll engage the Iranians, give them everything they want, and as a result of that, they'll essentially you know, kind of calm down in the region. And what happened was we engaged with the Iranians, we gave them everything they want, and they demonstrably became more aggressive in the region. They up support for the Houthi war in Yemen, they're, they're digging in, destabilizing Iraq, they were, they were in Syria, they were going after Israel. So engaging Iran, just like you know, letting, letting the, uh, the prisoners out of the cage, they, they just got, they got more aggressive. You know, in, in, in contrast to that, what Trump did, the maximum pressure was, he denied them a lot of resources, put a lot of pressure on them, and, and predictably the Iranians became less aggressive um, uh, and more risk-averse because the more pressure you put on them, the more they worry about controlling the regime, the more they worry about controlling the regime and the country, the less risk-averse they get in foreign affairs. And so what does Biden do? I mean, demonstrably, the Obama plan failed. Demonstrably, the Trump plan worked. And Biden comes in and reflexively goes back to the Obama plan. And what happens? We see a more aggressive Iran. They're more aggressive in uh, Yemen. They're more aggressive in Syria. They're more aggressive in Iraq. Uh, they're greater danger to Israel and, and other neighbors. And, 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 what, and now they're, they're openly flaunting their partnership with Russia. In the, while everybody else in the world is condemning and isolating the Russians, the Iranians are openly boasting of their ties with Russia. In the whole ob- objective of the Abraham Accords, as uh, Jeff Dunnitz wrote about it at lidblog.com, instead of being engaged in land for peace, it engages the idea of peace for peace. I thought that was a very good way to, to describe uh, the, the situation. Allow nations to normalize relations with Israel, allow them to engage in trade, engage in tourism, and build up relationships from there, and from there, other things can blossom and, and, and grow. None of this happened without a wink and a nod and an okay from Saudi Arabia. I think I'm not right. off base by stating such a thing. So Saudi Arabia clearly was okay with these Abraham Accords before they, they went forward. Right. Now that they are in place and now that we see trade with the UAE and some of these other nations, Iran certainly does seem more desperate. That would seem time to have Iran on the ropes as opposed to further reaching out to them. How does the guy with 40 plus years of the best foreign policy experience ever 
keep making these mistakes. What is the ideology that is so mistaken within him and, the, as I would see it, the progressive left? Well, because, because look, this is essentially the Obama administration. Everybody, including Biden, was in the Obama administration, and they just reflexively are going back to Obama policies, which are heavily influenced by the left of their party, which hate Israel, which embrace the Muslim Brotherhood, which really don't have a problem with Islamist extremists, uh, and think that turning the region over to them would work out just fine. So that's, that's exactly why we are where we are. Look, what the Abraham Accords did was solve really a, an intractable problem for the United States that we've never been able to solve since the end of World War II, which is, look, the Middle East matters. It is important. It's in the middle of everything. It matters for oil. It matters for ocean transport. It matters for sea transport, finance, migration patterns. It is a part of the world which, if it is not at peace, creates problems for everybody else in the world. So wanting that part of the world to not be a dumpster fire is actually a good thing for the United States. And the way we've tried to address that literally for decades is we either jump in with the 82nd Airborne in two feet and try to fix all the problems, or we try to run away and do nothing and hope it doesn't blow up. And so somewhere between what um, Bush tried to do in the Iraq war and what Obama tried to do, walk away and do nothing, Donald Trump came and said, you know, there is a smart middle way here. And it was the Abraham Accords. And it was the idea that if we abandon this notion that everything, ha- everything in the Middle East has to stand still until the Palestinians get what we want, and we create a process of normalization between the Arab states and Israel, here's what will happen. One is you'll have economic integration, because they each bring things to the table in the region, which will help with the most critical issue, which is job growth and prosperity for a wide swath of people. That economic integration is also going to fuel diplomatic immigration, and it's going to fuel security cooperation. And that's going to do two things. One is it's going to solve the endemic problems of the region and the lack of development of good governance, of economic prosperity, um, of, better, of better physical security for the people. The second thing is it's going, to, it's going to create a core of states which have one common interest, which is having Iran come in and destabilize and take over the region is not a good idea. And then you have a partner for the United States, much, not like NATO, but in, but in a similar way, that have a vested interest in peace and security in the region. So then the United States doesn't have to either run away and do nothing, and we don't have to do it all ourselves. Instead, we have partners on the ground who have a vested interest that we can work with. And this is a sustainable security, economic, diplomatic par- partnership that could last for decades. Before I, before was, I let you go, I, yeah. I, I wanted to, because I'm up a little bit against uh, time, I wanted to talk about Yair Lapid, who is the prime minister. Of course, you had the bit of shuffling right. with Naftali Bennett saying we're going to uh, abandon this government and they're once again going to engage an election. You had this power-sharing agreement with uh, Lapid. He now uh, takes over. Uh, the What is upcoming for Israeli elections. Is this uh, Lapid's race to lose? And what kind of of Politico is he? Is there an opening here for Benjamin Netanyahu of Likud uh, to come back and, and take power? What does that mean for the region and some of these relationships uh, vis-a-vis the Abraham Accords and relationships with the United States? I, I think Netanyahu is going to win. I mean, the only thing in holding the coalition together was getting Netanyahu out. And what they found is, is they can't they can't govern efficiently. And so I think 
people will, you know, my, my guess is people will realize he, now he's the only practical option. He'll come back in charge, um, which also largely makes this, this trip, again, kind of a nothing burger, because it's very likely nothing that the two sides can agree on that's going to last in a few months. And, and, and if the president thinks that somehow in this trip he's going to salvage the Iran deal, he is unbelievably stupid. Yes, but he is. And I think that's well, I think that's part of the problem. It's, it's this least, constant ideology over reality. Yeah. You know what you know what uh Gates said that you know he, Biden all, you know for 40 years never made a right call and and you know he's continued to demonstrate amazing consistency. James J. Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy, the E.W. Richardson Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. I always appreciate you taking the time to be with us, sir. We've got more coming up, guys. I'm Tony Katz. Premier Arms, Brownsburg, maybe, maybe my voice will be awesome again. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, Producer Ari, what do you think of this? Uh, it's, it's choppy. Choppy? Does that mean gravelly? Um, it, I mean, it sounds like you got some marbles in your throat, yeah. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's just a cold. I mean, it is, it is what it is, and everyone is like, oh my gosh, it's COVID. There is an increase in COVID cases. There's a new variant going around, but... I'm not hearing anything about uh, hospitalizations and deaths. I did have one doctor give me some interesting news, but I need to verify. I want to just check on and make sure I've asked the right questions before I, uh, I bring it to you. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? This Saturday, we're going to be at Premier Arms in Brownsburg. So Firearm Store, great sponsor of the program, PremierArms.com. From 3 to 7 p.m., we are doing Eat, Drink, Smoke Live from 4 to 5, the Cigar and Bourbon Show. So I'm really hoping the voice is back for that. And then uh, the gun guy, Guy Relford, has his show from 5 to 7. We're raising money for a group called Brownsburg Blessing Boxes. So they feed people in need. Absolutely uh, fantastic. We actually did a book signing at Premier Arms about a year ago, and we're, we're able to, to support them. We're doing it. Uh, again, it's going to be absolutely terrific. So three to seven, and we'll have a food truck so you can buy a uh, barbecue. And then we're having beer donated by Noble Wine and Spirits in Noblesville. So uh, there'll be some adult beverages. you got to be 21. Come on, people. Get it straight. And then we'll have cigars. We're going to review the uh, Christoph Pistoff. Uh, K-R-I-S-T-O-F-F. It's a great, great cigar. The Alec Bradley Magic Toast. That's another one that we're going to be doing right there. And then uh, we'll have the Oliva V. Melania, which is one of my go-to favorites. Always works uh, cigars. So we'll have that, and you'll be able to check those out and purchase those at Premier Arms. Uh, if you go inside PA Jewelers, the jewelry store, 10% of your purchase at the jewelry store goes to Brownsburg Blessing Boxes. But the key is, for every $100 donation, you can, you can even make it over the phone, 317-858-3030, 317-858-3030. Every $100 donation makes you eligible to win one of the prize packs. So we've got gift cards to Premier Arms and gift cards to PA Jewelers. Then we have a whole cigar pack with a humidor and cigars, lighter, the whole thing. Then we have an Olight package, and you people who are in, into the firearms know what that is. And then we have two, two Cox Arms custom firearms with a value of $4,400. 
and that could be yours if you make a hundred dollar donation or more to Brownsburg Blessing Boxes. We're gonna raise so much money. We're gonna have such a good time. We're gonna eat barbecue. We're gonna smoke cigars. We're gonna have a beverage. You gotta be twenty one, and and then we're gonna raise money. What what else could you want to do? What else? How else could you want to spend a, a, a Saturday? Three to seven p.m. People, three to seven p.m. Saturday. 3754 South Green Street in Brownsburg. You can make a donation right now. 317-858-3030. Online, premierarms.com. And hopefully the voice will be chef's kiss perfect. Mwah! Delicious. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today.